Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to Australia on this day. My name's Michael Adams and today we're going back to Tuesday, the 3rd of September, 1901. That was the day the Australian flag was flown for the first time. And while everybody at that time knew who designed the flag, in years to come, the facts would be twisted into a self-serving myth that, for a long time, held sway. In 1900, with Federation on the horizon, Australia didn't yet have a national flag. So, on the 4th of June that year, under the headline, The Federal Flag is What We Want, Melbourne's Herald newspaper launched a competition for a design. The winner would get £25 and another £25 if the federal government adopted the winning design. And in September 1900, the winner was Mr Frederick Thompson, a bookseller from Melbourne. His flag had the Southern Cross on one half and on the other a Union Jack and six horizontal red and white stripes representing the six colonies that would soon be the six federated states. Spoiler alert, Frederick Thompson didn't get the bonus £25 because the federal government wouldn't end up being interested in this design. The editorial bosses of the publication Review of Reviews was also underwhelmed by Frederick Thompson's work. So, in October 1900, it offered £50 to anyone who could do better. Entries were to be submitted anonymously and the Review of Reviews claimed they'd be judged by the six premiers of the six colonies, soon to be states. Review of Reviews was to boost the prize to £75. And in April 1901, by which time Federation was a reality, a patriotic company realised that putting £50 towards the flag competition prize would be a good marketing move. That company have a lot tobacco, meaning that our national flag design was in part funded by a promo for Smoko. The federal government also came to the party on the 29th of April 1901 when it assumed control of the competition and put up £75 of its own, bringing the total prize to £200. That was big money back then, about four years average salary. Flag designs had been pouring into review of reviews since October. Now, with £200 up for grabs, they flooded into the federal government, mainly from Australia, but also from New Zealand, England, the US, Canada and China, among other countries. In all, 32,823 entries were received. Given most were from Australia, and we then had a white population of 3.8 million, the numbers could be extrapolated to mean that as many as one in every 125 Australians had had a go. Their entries were as colourful and as varied as you can imagine. If different tastes had prevailed, we might have had a flag featuring six whirling boomerangs, a six-tailed kangaroo, a kangaroo and a British lion joined by a sash, or, as a later newspaper report put it, a winged cricket ball with a kangaroo on it and two emus running down the pitch. The judges, rather than being state premiers, wound up being sea and navy captains who, presumably, knew flags better than anyone. 
they were also fairly conservative, so there wasn't going to be any cricket ball with a kangaroo on it. This board of judges reviewed all the designs, which were then all hung in Melbourne's exhibition building for a massive public display, which was to be opened on the 3rd of September 1901. On the 1st of September, the judges delivered their report to the Prime Minister, Edmund Barton. Their report found that the vast majority of entries had, quite rightly in their opinion, contained the Union Jack and the Southern Cross. Thus, quote, the only additional emblem required was one representing the Federation of the Six States. This was where designers had varied, going with bars, shields, people, animals, stripes, and so on. Having assessed all the designs with regard to history, heraldry, blazonry, distinctiveness, and, quite practically, the cost of manufacture, the judges arrived on the winning design. Union Jack in the top left-hand corner, Federation star beneath it, then, to the right, the Southern Cross. Six stars, each with six points for six states. Nice, simple, looked good with either a red or blue background. On this day in 1901, Her Excellency Lady Hopetown, wife of our first Governor-General, declared the display of entries open, and a flag measuring 18 feet by 36 feet, based on the winning design, was run up the mast over the exhibition building's dome. As this took place, Prime Minister Edmund Barton read out the names of the five co-winners who'd all submitted virtually identical designs. So the £200 prize was to be split five ways. £40 was still pretty good, being close to a year's wage. While the Australian flag flew over the exhibition building on this day in 1901, it wouldn't be until 1903 that King Edward VII's ascent was formally received and the flag was officially proclaimed Australia's ensign. Five years later, in 1908, the flag was modified so that the large Federation star beneath the Union Jack and the four main stars of the Southern Cross each had seven points, with the extra one representing the Australian Territories. So, who were the five people who designed the Australian flag? The most surprising was a 14-year-old Melbourne boy named Ivor Evans. Yet, in a way, he was always going to be a winner, even if he hadn't entered. That was because his father, Evan Evans, had been running a flag-making business for nearly a quarter of a century. With demand for the new flags, whatever the design, the Evans company, which Ivor was set to inherit, would make a mozza. The other Victorian winner was Melbourne architect Bert Nuttall. Then there was Leslie Hawkins, optician's apprentice from Sydney. A Kiwi sailor named William Stevens had also come up with the winning design. While Lady Hopetown had done the honours opening the flag exhibition, Australia in 1901 was very much a man's world and women wouldn't get the vote until the following year. Yet this new flag had also been designed by a woman, well-known artist Annie Whistler-Dorrington of Perth. So this week in 1901, the five winners' names were found in every newspaper article about Australia's flag being raised for the first time. Yet, within 20 years or so, it had become well-known who designed Australia's flag single-handedly. And that was Ivor Evans, the plucky patriotic schoolboy who'd beaten the 32,822 other entrants. After he finished school, Ivor Evans had worked with the bank for a while. 
Just prior to the Great War, he'd taken over the family business. And in the same year that the Great War ended, the idea of Ivor as sole flag designer was gaining currency. Why? It was all thanks to a widely distributed booklet called The History of the Australian Flag. First published in 1918 and reprinted frequently, this was a 19-page guide that answered all your Australian flag questions. There was info on the competition, its designer, its symbolism, and how the flag was to be raised, lowered, displayed and maintained. There are also numerous pages of other flag titbits, from the history of the Union Jack to the use of meteorological flags. On the first page, the booklet gave an overview of the competition, before saying that due to the winning design's quote, masterly conception, the judges quote, unanimously acclaimed it the epitome of simplicity and patriotism. Its young designer was Ivor Evans, then a schoolboy, now well known in business circles in Melbourne. As I've said, the book devoted page after page to any number of flag facts. Yet nowhere were the other four winners mentioned. In fact, on the cover of the pamphlet, it said, The History of the Australian Flag, dot dot dot, designed in 1901 by Ivor Evans of 680 Elizabeth Street, Melbourne. In case you haven't guessed, the author and publisher of this pamphlet was Ivor Evans. Ivor's relentless self-promotion was so successful that in 1928, Prime Minister Stanley Bruce felt compelled to issue a statement. His department told the press, quote, It would not be correct to say that any one of the winning designs was adopted by the Commonwealth. They each embodied the main idea, which was eventually incorporated in the National Ensign. The statement then listed the five winners. By then, sadly, Annie Dorrington, who'd been a successful artist, had become plagued by depression, had been hospitalised and estranged from her husband. She died of cancer in 1926 and been buried in an unmarked grave in Karakatta Cemetery in Perth. The Kiwi co-winner, William Stevens, had also died in 1928, just two months before Prime Minister Stanley Bruce set the record straight. The other two winners, Leslie Hawkins and Bert Nuttall, were still alive. Any solace they might have gotten from Stanley Bruce's announcement was sullied by the fact that Ivor Evans' campaign of self-promotion continued unabated. So much so that in 1951, the 50th anniversary of the flag being raised for the first time, newspaper articles tried to correct readers' impressions that the flag had been the work of just one kid. Still, it persisted, even in the classroom, and in 1953, Prime Minister Robert Menzies had to issue a flag certificate that was distributed to schools to settle the question by again setting out the details of the competition and listing the names of the five winners. Hopefully, that did give some comfort to Leslie Hawkins, who'd been just 18 when he'd won the competition and was by now 70 years old. Bert Nuttall, who'd been born in 1866, was also still alive, then aged 89, so hopefully it put a smile on his face too. Against all odds, Annie Dorrington also finally got her dues. Her Karakata grave was unknown until it was discovered by the Australian National Flag Association of Western Australia in 1998, with the association erecting a monument to Annie Dorrington there in 1999. I'm Michael Adams and you've been listening to Australia on This Day. 
make sure you're subscribed to get every episode as soon as it's released. If you've enjoyed the show, I'd love it if you could leave a review and rating at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're after more tales from our fascinating history, check out my other show, Forgotten Australia. This podcast was produced in the Blue Mountains of New South Wales on land traditionally owned by the Darug and Gundungurra people. Thanks for listening and catch you tomorrow. Tired of ads interrupting your gripping investigations? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Ads shouldn't be the scariest thing about true crime. Start listening by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash true crime ad free. That's amazon.com slash true crime ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.